Hey everybody, Randy here. Before we dive into this chapter episode, I want to quickly mention it's sponsored by Holderness and Born. We've partnered with them now three years in a row, and I can honestly say they are my favorite polos that, that I wear. They obviously make no laying up branded polos that you can find in our shop, and they are growing their presence all across the country and in golf shops everywhere. Just really premium apparel, classic style, uh, but, but real nice performance material really really nice not only to play in but i'll wear it out to dinner as well i'll have more on that in in just a bit but just wanted to thank holderness and born for their support and now i believe it's mr jeezy's time As always, my sincerest thanks, Mr. Jeezy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Trap Draw. I know it's been a little while. We like to keep you guessing with the production schedule. Today's episode is uh, a U.S. Open-themed episode, which is very fitting. It's obviously U.S. Open week. Uh, My guest is Bill Fields, and he and I actually talk a little bit about this year's U.S. Open, but the real crux of our conversation is about U.S. Opens over 100 years ago. And specifically, we dive into the story of two-time U.S. Open winner John McDermott. If you're at all like me, I really was not familiar at all with John McDermott's story. And really, I got into a rabbit hole. It was back in April during Masters weekend. There were rumors that a guy from Philadelphia named Michael McDermott might be the marker playing with, as it was, Eddie Pepperell that weekend. Um, it, it, in fact, turned out to be uh, everybody's favorite marker, Jeff Knox. But somebody on our message board, The Refuge, had wondered if Michael McDermott, who's from Philadelphia, was any relation to John McDermott, former U.S. Open champion who was also from Philadelphia. And not knowing who John McDermott was, I Googled him, Wikipedia, and went down a little bit of a rabbit hole, as you know, as is very easy to happen. And what I soon discovered was one, a tremendous article written by Bill Fields in 2004, and two, a story that was both fascinating and really sad and tragic. Um, I, I really wanted to talk to Bill Fields about his article and the research he'd done on John McDermott. And so that's that's what this episode is going to be about, uh, going all through his research and, and him telling the story of, of John McDermott. Before we get into that, I want to quickly introduce Bill Fields. For those who may not know him, Bill is a golf writer and photographer. He is from Pinehurst, North Carolina, graduate of UNC at Chapel Hill. From 1993 to 2014, he was senior editor at Golf World magazine and had earlier stints at Golf Illustrated, Golf World, the Asheville Citizen, and the Athens Banner Herald. He has been a four-time first-place winner in the Golf Writers Association of America's annual writing contest, 
and among other things, has collaborated and, and written a couple books, uh, one being the 1993 book with Dr. Richard Koop called Mind Over Golf, and then he also has an anthology of, of his golf writing called Arnie, Seve, and a Fleck of Golf History, which was published in 2014 and, and which he mentions in our interview. Um, so without further ado, I hope you enjoy our discussion. Bill, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing well, Randy. Nice to be with you. Well, th- thank you. Um, do you have any work responsibilities for the U.S. Open? Are you going to be out at Pebble this year? Uh, I will not be at Pebble this year. I, I covered 36 consecutive U.S. Opens from 1985 through 2016, but I've, I've not done the last couple. But I'll certainly be uh, be watching from afar. So covering 36 straight U.S. Opens, that's amazing. Um, when, what, are, what are some of the first memories that, that pop into your mind uh, related to those U.S. Opens? Uh, actually, yeah, it's 30, 32, I guess. I may have uh, not very good at math. Uh, 32 consecutive it was. <laughs> N- noted, yeah. 32. Yeah, you know, uh, gosh, the event uh, changed a lot in that period. Uh, the first one I went to was the 1985 at Oakland Hills, uh, Andy North second to U.S. Open. And, you know, it was obviously a big, big deal. It's a national championship, but just the infrastructure and the, you know, everything around the 18 holes is so much different now. So many more, you know, structures and, uh, you know, you, you have to park farther away. It's just a, it's just a different deal uh, now than it was, uh, you know, in that generation. And, and you've probably you're, – you're a Pinehurst, North Carolina native, is that correct? Yeah, I was born in Pinehurst and uh, grew up in Southern Pines uh, five miles away. Yeah, so you've probably seen – well, just from the U.S. Opens at, at Pinehurst, you've you've probably seen that evolution um, of the event up close and personal in a sense as well. Yeah, it was a, it was a big deal for everybody that grew up around there when, you know, they got to 99 U.S. Open because, you know, we really thought that it probably was never going to happen because – you know, as great as number two course is, it, it, it had not held a, you know, a major. It only held the one major, the 1936 PGA Championship. It had a couple of U.S. amateurs. But, uh, yeah, that was uh, fun. And, uh, you know, that really came along right when the area was growing a lot. So it's certainly not the sleepy, uh, as I call it, sophisticated Mayberry that it was when I was a kid. But still a, still a great place. Um, well, I want to, and, and we'll do it at, at the end of our discussion. I wanted to, uh, maybe get, get your pick for, for this year's winner. But the, the real reason why I wanted to talk to you, um, I came across a, a story you wrote called the trials of a trailblazer, which was originally published in June of 2004 in golf world. And it, it just grabbed my attention for a, a fascinating story and um, certainly one that I hadn't heard. And, and so I, I, I wanted to talk to you and, and hopefully uh, get you to retell the story for our audience because I, I think it's one probably a lot of people don't know. Um, so if you don't mind, I, I'd love to kind of start from, from a high level. John McDermott, why is the name John McDermott important to American golf? Well, he he lives in the record book for two principal reasons. He remains the youngest at 19 to win the, the U S open. And, uh, he will always be the first American born player to win the open after 16 players, uh, from great Britain won, uh, the U S open. He was the first in 1911 to actually, you know, get the trophy. So he's a big deal for those reasons, but he's really a big deal for 
other more human reasons when you find out what his life was like. And certainly that's that's where what I want to get into. Um, and and I won't <laughs> ruin the surprise. I'll let you tell the story. But but let's go to, to the start of McDermott's story. What what can you tell us about his upbringing in the Philadelphia area and and how he got introduced to the game of golf? Well, he grew up, uh, you know, very much uh, modest means. His father was a mailman, and they lived in uh, West Philadelphia. You know, it was a suburb that was, uh, you know, packed with Irish immigrants. Um, you know, really one of those classic urban uh, type type settings. And he sort of got exposed to golf with the, you know, what was then the Aronimank Golf Club. It was near his grandfather's farm, not too far from, you know, where. Uh, McDermott grew up with his with his father John Senior, his mother Margaret, and his sisters Alice and Gertrude. You know, he he, he was a caddy by age nine, and uh, you know he really took a liking to the game. Um, he, he took a liking to it, I think, because it was a solitary pursuit, and by all accounts, he was a he was a solitary figure even even in those young years. Yeah, in your story, you you relay a couple um, of, of interesting anecdotes. Do you happen to, to, to remember one or two of those, and, and would you mind sharing? I, I'm thinking specifically of the Orchard uh, story. Yeah. One of his friends had had reported that uh, they had a, a, an area near an apple orchard near their, near their home on the outskirts of the neighborhood, and they had, uh, you know, sort of built a little rudimentary uh, golf area there, dug some holes and put 10 cups in the ground, as, you know, a lot of us did as kids later on even, but... This is sort of how McDermott got his start. But the, the story was that if, if somebody else came along, he didn't really like that. He really liked to be alone and he would, you know, he would stop playing and walk away if, if someone else came around. So um, he really uh, seemed to, you know, have a, a bit of a distinct personality even at that point. So so take me through. He, he dropped out of high school. Is that right? He, he didn't complete his, his high school education? Uh, he did not. He was a good student, but, you know, I guess he just didn't didn't really like it and uh, against his you know father's wishes he <clears throat> he tried to get into the golf uh, trade and uh you know i'm sure his father who was a you know had a you know a, a steady job as a postman i'm sure that wasn't uh, very popular but um mcdermott did dive into golf and he was very good at it um wasn't a wasn't a big fellow um as an adult he was about five eight and 130 pounds but in photographs and, and footage that I that I saw researching the story, his hands ex- seem extraordinarily uh, large for a man of that size. Really large fingers and and hands, and um, he actually developed a grip where he overlapped uh, two fingers of his right hand on his left, and so he really had only eight fingers touching the the, the handle. But um, it clearly worked for him. And you know, like you think of other golfers that have had big, strong hands. You think of Arnold Palmer and Byron Nelson for two. Jack Nicklaus would be an exception. But McDermott certainly had hands and forearms of a, of a larger man. Yeah, and you also pointed out he kind of had what might be um, thought of as a, as a more of a modern swing, maybe a little ahead of his time even with, with the way he, he swung the club. Yeah, he had a lot of hands and wrist in his action, as, as everybody did you know, in those days. But he also seemed to sort of use his uh, – use his body a little more effectively and kind of chase through the ball with his right side, you know, maybe a bit more extension uh, in line with what players uh, down the road would, would have in their swings. So he could have been a, a little bit of a, a forerunner in that way. Mm-hmm. 
So obviously, you know, dropping out of high school and, and pursuing professional golf in, in the early 20th century was uh, much, much more of a difficult path than than even you know, certainly today. Um, his, his first U.S. Open appearance was at the age of 17, actually in 1909, and he finished, uh, I believe, tied for for 49th. Um, but but it was that next year. 1910 do you was there anything in your research I, I know he finished runner-up is, is there anything um interesting from from that u.s open well he you know his uh his game clearly was was getting better because he was he was working on it more and uh you know he eventually lost a playoff there to, to alex smith in uh in, in 1910 so a huge deal a guy from his background you know coming along and you know as an american uh when americans were certainly not the, the centerpiece of, uh, of uh, open golf. Uh, to have that kind of a finish had to give him a lot of confidence, and the confidence was not something that he ever lacked, you know, as we'll probably get into. He, he was pretty brash, and uh, whether that brashness was, you know, related to the you know, psychological condition that you know, appeared later on, you know, who knows, but he definitely did not lack for confidence, and I'm sure coming that close to winning in his second U.S. Open was a a very big deal for him. Well, two things to note. The first 16 U.S. Opens uh, were all won by, by, you know, gentlemen from from Great Britain. And it seems like uh, McDermott's big breakthrough, he did win the Philadelphia Open in 1910 at the age of 18, which, you know, had to kind of help his confidence. So, Let's go into 1911, the the, the historic win. Um, what can you tell us about the the win in 1911, and the, and then the uh, the back to back win he also wanted in 1912. Well, one one difference in 1911, one one player that was missing from the field was uh, was Willie Anderson, who had been a the great Open specialist really throughout the first decade of of the century. He'd won, of course, three in a row, but uh, he had died tragically at age 31. Just uh, late in 2000 and uh, I mean, sorry, in 1910. So uh, Willie Anderson was not in the field. So that, that made that tournament different. Uh, 1911 was played at Chicago golf club, which is, you know, obviously one of the great, great courses in, in America. And it was certainly the, the centerpiece of, of Western golf, as you will, in that, in that era, in that era, you know, McDermott, uh, you know, back then, of course, uh, the open was played in a compacted uh, schedule, only a couple of days, not four days. And uh, they had uh, Chicago golf club, was was known as a you know a very good test par of 76 at the time uh you know some of the players that had uh that had won uh, u.s opens were in that field fred mcleod george Sargent, alex ross uh, brother of donald alex smith part of the great uh, smith family of golf uh, brothers they were all there but mcdermott uh prevailed ended up you know shooting a, a 79 in the final round but that was uh good enough to get him into a playoff and uh he beat mike brady and george simpson and uh and, and got the trophy so uh, only 19 years old i think <laughs> what the usga I, I sometimes i think they'd love to see a final round 79 from from the leader you know st- still today um that's that's kind of amazing to uh to think about yeah he shot an 80 in the playoff to win by uh two over brady yeah yeah Okay, so so obviously the the win at nineteen is it's it's a dual feat, like we said. He's he becomes the youngest champion uh, in the U.S. Open and also the first American. And so setting the stage then for nineteen twelve, 
uh, it seemed like a, a very momentous year. You know, obviously McDermott has burst onto the to the golf scene, um, and, and things are really building for him. What can can you walk us through the the nineteen twelve season he had? <clears throat> well, um, clearly he's he's now identified as one of the best players in golf as a result of having gone, um, you know, lost in a playoff and then won in a playoff. Uh, 1912 U.S. Open was at the Country Club of Buffalo, upstate New York. Um, that course was a par 74, but it had a, a, a 600 uh, plus yard par six on the card. So, you know, you can imagine playing with the, the equipment of the day, trying to, you know, get home in three in a, on a 600 yard hole. You know, that's pretty, pretty stout. You know, just in general, I would say, you know, there's a lot of people that degrade the quality of the golf played in that era, but I would say that Anybody who succeeded at golf back then would have a much better chance of succeeding today, given all the advantages of equipment, technology, uh, agronomics, than necessarily the players today would if they had to be put back in a period where they they had to play with such rudimentary equipment on, um, you know, uneven turf conditions. I think you got to give these players of that era, including John McDermott, great credit for how they played because it was uh, the game is hardly a resemblance of of what it is now in terms of the, the turf conditions and the equipment. It's just, it's night and day. And yet these people still, you know, got around in uh, low to mid seventies. McDermott shot a 71 in the final round in, in 1912. So, uh, you know, he finished under par under 294 for 72 holes. So, you know, he won by five over, over the guy, uh, Alex Smith. That's pretty darn good. I think. Yeah, and in fact, uh, what I read, that under par uh, winning score, he, he was the first player to accomplish that as well, uh, finishing finishing under par for, for the championship. Yeah, which is uh, no no small thing, I don't think. So he's, he's captured back-to-back U.S. Open championships. He's 20 years old. You know, the, the sky seems to be the, the limit, quite literally, for him. It, it takes us then into to 1913. I'll skip ahead, and, and I think, you know, reading your article and, and kind of preparing for, for this interview, 1913 seemed to be um, a, a big turning point for him. And, and I think um, it, it obviously started out really well uh, from a golf perspective. I, I'll let you talk about it. He, he won the Shawnee Open. Uh, he did. Now it was a big tournament at that time uh, down in the, you know, Delaware, uh, Pennsylvania area. It was a big, big deal. And, uh, uh, that year was particularly a big deal because Harry Varden and Ted Ray, the two the two great um, players from across the pond, they were on tour, so they were they were competing in that Shawnee Open. And uh, when he won that tournament, uh, it was it was seen as a big deal in Philadelphia and in, in the newspaper there, the Inquirer. They gave him a lot of uh, attention, and you know it was a big. Deal. Connie Mack was had the athletics in the major leagues, and you know people were doing long swims out in the ocean and. Uh, you know, he, he got some attention for that. And you you said, you had mentioned earlier, he he was a very confident guy. The, there seemed to be a little bit of controversy following that win at the Shawnee Open where perhaps his confidence was either portrayed poorly by the, by the, by the newspaper or, you know, he, he, he maybe said some things he, he wish he didn't. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, he, he talked some, some, some smack uh, to the, to the, uh, to the uh, British stars and he did it that summer he also did it uh later that year at the, the u.s open at, at the country club in, in brookline uh in 1913 
So, so you even say after he defeated Alex Smith, Harry Varden, and, and uh, Ted Ray in the Shawnee Open, he he was quoted as, you know, essentially telling them maybe more or less th- this is how we do it in America, and and these guys essentially can can go on back to to Great Britain. Yeah, I mean, he he beat uh, Alex Smith by eight strokes in that tournament, Varden by thirteen, and Ted Ray by fourteen. So it was a pretty thorough uh, thorough trouncing there of those. Uh, you know, well-known uh, players. So, you know, McDermott was quoted as saying, we hope our foreign visitors had a good time, but we don't think they did. And we, sh- we're sure they won't win the national open. So that was the, that was sort of the, the prelude to that uh, open at, uh, at, at Brookline, you know, McDermott was, uh, you know, raring to go and, and thought he was going to get his third consecutive victory, just as Willie Anderson had done. Uh, not, not that, you know, not that many years earlier. Francis Wimet ended up winning that U.S. Open. I believe uh, McDermott finished in a tie for ninth. Was it? Yeah, he played. He played okay. It wasn't. It wasn't his week. <clears throat> and uh, but but we met later on. Uh, gave McDermott a lot of credit for. And then this goes a little bit against to the the character that McDermott was portrayed as. But we met gave McDermott a lot of credit for. Uh, boosting his spirits as he went up against uh, those two great uh, players from Great Britain. We met said that that John McDermott encouraged him with some nice words and uh, that that encouragement uh, helped him a lot and helped him able to, you know, stay in there and not succumb to the pressure of being in that situation. Um, and, and I misspoke. He actually finished eighth in that U.S. Open. Not He, he would finish tied for ninth the, the next year in, in 2014. Um, so what what seemed like a, a very promising um, 1913 campaign, obviously the, the big win at the Shawnee Open, uh, I, I think ended in a little bit of disappointment. Uh, he failed to capture the, the 1913 U.S. Open. Prior to that, though, he had, he had gone over to, to Great Britain. He played in his first uh, Open Championship, his, his first British Open, and, and finished tied for fifth which at the time was was the best finish by an American in in that championship. As mentioned a little bit earlier, this trap draw is sponsored by Holderness and Bourne. Uh, It's really more of a partnership than a sponsorship. We've been working with these guys, uh, Alex and John, for for going on four years now. They're the only polo we've ever stocked as far as a branded polo in our shop. We like working with with a small shop. We've we've grown with them as as we've gone along in our merchandise operation. Just modern classic distinctive stuff but it's it's pretty timeless uh the fit on it is just unbelievable come out with some new cotton stuff this year too great addition to the line but most of their business is through pro shops so when you walk into either your pro shop or you're playing at a club this summer um you know they they've got a outstanding list of clubs that they're already in if they're not in your club or you want to see them in a club talk to the pros there get them to stock it um, but but seek out that Holderness and Bourne table when you're in the pro shop at at a Mountain Lake or Fishers or you know Pinehurst or wherever you are this summer. Uh, I guarantee you it'll be the best polo in your closet. And so we we roll the calendar forward to 1914 now. And Bill, if you don't mind, could could you kind of walk us through the the year he had in 1914? Because I I think this is kind of when. Um, you know the 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 sadness of the story begins and, and as well as you know just from an outsider's perspective um for for lack of a better word it it kind of starts to get interesting yeah and i'm sure the context of 1914 would would have been that mcdermott would have seen how much love there was for we met having won that 
1913 U.S. Open. We met got a lot more attention for that than John McDermott got winning for two U.S. Open. So that was the context. Uh, he did sail over to try to play in the 1914 uh, Open Championship, but he missed a ferry and a train that would have gotten into Presswick in time to qualify. And officials even offered to to, to give him, cut him some slack and let him uh, still find a way to play the championship. But he, you know, he declined saying it would be unfair to the other, other competitors. And then just as uh, he was sailing back on the, on the, on the Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, the second ship, uh, it was struck by a, by a grain carrier in the English channel. And, uh, you know, it made it back safely to England, even though it suffered a, a, a gash in it, in its uh, hull, but, you know, some of the passengers, including McDermott, were put in lifeboats. He was actually getting a, a, bar, a haircut in the ship's barbershop when the when the collision occurred. But apparently that experience uh, was something that really affected McDermott. And uh, as, his, as his sister Gertrude later told someone, everything hit within a year. Uh, he had had a stock, some loss of money in the stock market. And then, um, you know, the open came and, you know, that uh, the shipwreck and uh, uh, Jim Finnegan, uh, the, the late, uh, very fine writer in the Philadelphia area, who also wrote about McDermott over the years. Jim Finnegan wrote that, you know, Johnny entered the 1914 U.S. Open. But, you know, some would say the abrasive self-confidence that had always marked his demeanor was nowhere in evidence. And, uh, you know, and that just uh, sort of led later that year to a very, a very sad thing. His mind in October. Uh, he was working at Atlantic City Country Club, and uh, he just he just uh, you know collapsed in the pro shop, and um, you know had a had a serious uh, breakdown, and he was uh, he was soon taken to two mental hospitals in Massachusetts and another one in Philadelphia, and that really began um, the rest of John McDermott's life as a as a person suffering with uh, schizophrenia. It was a very very uh, very dramatic development in his life. I, I think a, a couple things to to note when he was committed to the the state hospital for the insane in in Pennsylvania, he was still two months shy of his twenty fifth birthday, I believe. Yeah, it would have been uh, after sort of being uh, around in a couple of different hospitals in in nineteen sixteen. His family did have him committed to that um, state hospital for the insane in Norristown, uh, and that's pretty much where he ended up, um, you know, for decades. Yeah, and and I want to get into because I think it's it's that's that's where a lot of the the interest for me or, or just the the fascination and and the the weight of the story uh, is in those later years. Um, but but the only thing I was going to note a little nugget uh, schizophrenia was actually somewhat of a well not a new condition perhaps, but it had actually just been named by the medical field uh, actually in 1910. Yeah, I mean mental illness was was certainly not not. Uh, known and studied as much, uh, you know, people with the name of the hospital, lunatic. Well, you know, of course, no one would would call someone who has mental illness a lunatic today. But that's just uh, that's just the way the the world was in those years. And you know, I think from what the experts told me that I interviewed while doing this story, you know, Dermot really was was lucky in a sense because the, the hospital in Norristown where he ended up, it really wasn't the worst by any means. Uh, it was the patients were were pretty reasonably cared for there were some exceptions that we'll probably get into but you know it wasn't uh you know a snake pit if you will that that some poor people were were forced to to go to when they snapped so mcdermott really really got lucky in that in a sense that his 
his his institution was not the worst of the worst. And, and I do want to ask you about that to to kind of lay some context though. Um, in a 2011 Golf Digest article by Sam Weinman, he quotes a, a local Philadelphia paper as uh, saying this about McDermott. They, they said the finest golfing machine ever developed in the country has gone to smash. And it, it just is, you know, for, from the very height of golf, you know, back-to-back U.S. Open victories, his whole career in front of him, uh, he finds himself, like we said, not quite 25 years old, and he's committed uh, to essentially an insane asylum in Pennsylvania. What can you... I, I was just going to ask, Bill, what what can you tell us? You know, you, you touched on a little bit of the conditions, uh, but is there anything specific about that Norristown facility and those, you know, in, ensuing years uh, after his commitment? Uh, anything that stands out in your research? Well, um, as I said, it, it wasn't um, it wasn't the worst type of facility, but nonetheless, it was a you know it was a it was a mental mental hospital and. No one would would choose to end up in a place like that. Um, I think the most bizarre uh, thing that that I came upon was one of his, you know, one of his treatments. At that time, you know, therapies for for mental illness were, you know, some of them were frankly bizarre. And there was a belief that um, that patients, if they were wrapped wrapped tightly in a sheet, drenched with water, that it would, you know, would shrink and it would sort of bind them, and they would they would you know, the water calmed people down, they thought, but, you know, it's hard to believe that McDermott would have received that type of therapy after the fact that a shipwreck was, was sort of, you know, a trauma that, that may have, you know, triggered his condition to kick in. So it's hard to believe that he had to go through that, but, but he did, you know, and, you know, he was in this facility and he was a professional, he was a golf professional, but, you know, there were people from all walks of life, you know, there were actors and, you know, the nuns and soldiers and people that repaired watches there, you know, everybody in society was there and McDermott was there and the place actually had a six hole golf course measuring a little over a thousand yards. And six years after McDermott got there in 1922, the great Walter Hagen came and, and, and played golf with, with, with uh, McDermott. And, uh, you know, you can imagine that scene, the guy who is now one of the top players in America, he goes by to see this man who's, whose mind is, uh, you know, broken and, you know, they play golf and, uh, you know, the, the story was that, you know, uh, McDermott told, told Walter Hagen, tell the boys I'm getting along just fine. Uh, so very, very uh, poignant scene there, uh, in the early 1920s. And McDermott actually got out of the institution to play a couple of competitive, uh, rounds, uh, which I, I, I found very striking. He got out in 1925. This was the last evidence that I could find where he played in a tournament. He played in, the uh, Shawnee Open and it played in the Philadelphia Open. He didn't uh, do very well. He broke one, broke 81 round at the Philadelphia tournament, but he you know finished next to last and uh, he, he he beat uh, a handful of players in the other event. But I did reach a man, a longtime uh, area club pro, Bud Lewis. Uh, he's since passed away, I believe, but 15 years ago he was alive and he had been a you know teenager and he'd actually been at one of those tournaments and he recalled to me that McDermott made a made a putt you know about a 30 foot putt on one hole and he and he laughed all the way to the next tee so clearly there was some odd odd behavior uh, from McDermott at that point 
Well, and it it sounds like he struck up a little bit of a an ongoing relationship then with with Bud Lewis. Uh, the the two would play uh, recreationally from time to time. Is is that right? Uh, they did. Uh, in, beginning in the in the ni- late nineteen thirties, when when uh, Lewis was a pro in the area, Lewis would would pick him up at the Norristown Hospital, and he'd have his um, McDermott have a suit on, and and they'd play. Lewis recalled that McDermott would shoot in the eighties. You know, at that point. And, you know, he sort of confirmed what I found out about his hands. And uh, he had big grips, oversized grips on his clubs. And I remember interviewing Lewis on this. And he would, I said, you know, can you can you be specific about what, what McDermott was like in those years? Because, you know, there weren't that many people around who, who actually had spent time around McDermott, especially that far back. And, you know, he, he said that if you talk to anything serious, uh, that McDermott's eyes would water and he'd, he'd kind of stutter and he, he, he just really couldn't talk very much. And. When he said he, he brought up the U.S. Open victories, McDermott would, would kind of smile and laugh. But, you know, it was a very limited a bit of recall. It wasn't like McDermott could go in depth about having played that great golf that he did, you know, in 1911, 1912. In fact, uh, Bud Lewis wasn't the only person to, to, to play golf with, uh, with John McDermott. You talk about another gentleman uh, named Jerry Pisano who started playing with uh, McDermott I believe in the 1950s. I was hoping you could um, talk about that relationship as well. Yeah, here's, uh, you know, decades later, after Lewis first uh, played with him, uh, you know, another pro, um, you know, McDermott's sisters would take him out. And um, and uh, this uh, man, a young man at the time, uh, assistant pro at Overbrook Golf Club in, in Philadelphia, he'd show up with, uh, you know, his, his sleeves rolled up and, uh, uh, you know, kind of a scrawny looking guy, but, you know, Pisano told me that he could he could almost keep up with Pisano, a young man at the time, off the tee, hitting the ball 225 or so. And uh, he said he'd go around in, in 40 for nine holes, give or take a stroke or two. And, uh, you know, he, he told me that he just kind of did it out of instinct. And, you know, again, just like Bud Lewis, Pisano tried to get McDermott to elaborate on on his golf career. But, you know, it just, it just wasn't there. He just wasn't able to have that kind of recall. But I think what what these outings point to is that, you know, as, as is the case, uh, schizophrenia in, in folks, they, they usually the condition is managed better as they get older. You know, there's not so much wild outburst or or, or you know, really extreme behavior. So I think and the medications probably improved as McDermott got older. So I think his life stabilized, certainly uh, in those later years. And I was going to ask you just to kind of touch on the those those later years of his life you, you relay a, another story from I, I thought kind of a, a sad story quite honestly from the 1971 U.S. Open at Marion that was really near the end of John McDermott's life he would he would pass away in 1971 uh, just shy of his 80th birthday but he did uh, get taken out to the 71 U.S. Open at Marion which was uh, you know uh, known uh, for of course is the place where uh Lee Trevino beat Nicholas to win uh, to win his second U.S. Open, but you know McDermott was out there, and um, you know he was sort of you know disheveled and was uh, was asked to leave. And I think uh, you know as uh, as Steve Eubanks pointed out in a long story he did for Global Golf Post recently, uh, Arnold Palmer came to came to McDermott's uh, rescue and uh, sort of said, "Hey, this is this is John McDermott, U.S. Open champ. You know he's fine." So. You know, interesting that a player, you know, Palmer had uh, respect and recognized McDermott and uh, uh, allowed him to, to not be you know, removed from the pro shop or, or wherever he had been uh, during that during that event. But, 
Yeah, he died shortly thereafter at age 79. And, you know, one, as Eubanks pointed out in his piece, and I uh, alluded to as well, uh, one place that McDermott went to semi-regularly, at least in his later years, was Atlantic City Country Club, the place where he had been the pro and was stricken in in 1914. And uh, Leo Fraser, who was a very important man in golf and in the formation of the modern tour and everything, Leo Fraser uh, owned Atlantic City Country Club and you know, he, he befriended uh, John McDermott and, you know, was kind to him. And actually, he had, he had the gold medal uh, from uh, the 1911 U.S. Open. Uh, his sisters, uh, McDermott's sisters, had given that medal to Fraser, and they had it for years, and then they donated it to the USGA in, in 1997. So, and it just, uh, it's quite, a, quite, a, quite an arc of a, of a life. Uh, no one else in golf quite the same. Of course, there have been some other players who, had battled mental illness, Burt Yancey notably, other players that have talked about it, Stephen Bowditch, uh, currently uh, a man who plays the tour, has talked openly about his depression. But certainly no one became a champion like McDermott did and, and then was um, was stricken with uh, schizophrenia and, and, and uh, uh, so abruptly had his life changed, as, as did McDermott. You said he did pass away then in 1971. I, I thought you talked very poignantly um, about his his death and, and burial and and you know the, the attention or inattention that it that it received. I was hoping if you wouldn't mind sharing uh, that that part of the story too. Yeah, he's he's buried in a, a very large cemetery in in uh, Yadin, Pennsylvania, the Holy Cross Cemetery. He's he's uh, buried there, and there, there are lots of. Uh, Lots of John McDermott's there, because as you might expect, uh, you know a lot of a lot of Irish uh, families immigrated to the Philadelphia area, and he's he's one of many people there with that name. But you know he has a uh, uh, he has a, a monument there at his grave, and uh, it says uh, first American-born golf champion, uh, 1911-1912, and uh, uh, his his sisters are buried there too. But when, when I went there years ago, his uh, uh, his last sister uh, Gertrude, uh, who passed away there's really um uh there wasn't a name on the stone so you know it's uh it's striking to, to see where where john mcdermott is laid to rest because his really was a unique story in golf circles golf history and i think i read just just to kind of add to that i, I believe his death received like three paragraphs in the in the next day's paper which you know you think about the youngest person ever win you know the u.s open the the first american to win the u.s open it, it seems maybe should have received more attention and and you said you know they're easy to find a seat at his funeral you know uh, the, it was for for lack of a better word maybe sparsely attended yeah um and you think about what what he might have achieved had he not been stricken with mental illness i mean grantler rice some years later said you know he, he could have been the greatest of all i mean he and, you know, there was a guy that covered Bobby Jones and, and the other greats of the 20s and, and 30s. But, you know, we'll never know because uh, he, he really his career was so abruptly um, ended because of uh, his, his schizophrenia. Uh, just uh, we'll, we'll never know what would have happened. But certainly he rightly deserves to be mentioned as a, a very important part of American golf history because of what he did. And I think that's the thing for me is I've just enjoyed really learning his story like i said i I think it was 
fascinating, uh, again, for lack of a better word, it's certainly, you know, tragic too, but it's, it's nice to, for me, who, like I said, a fan of golf and, and certainly a lot to learn about the game of golf. It's nice to, uh, to, to learn about John McDermott and, and this, you know, th- this aspect of, of American golf. Yeah. And you know, if, uh, Randy, if, if anyone ever does, uh, break his record as the youngest, uh, player to win the u.s open you know his, his name will be will be remembered and, and that will be good because people if that were to happen people will will find out inadvertently who this who this man was a little bit which i think will be good because he, he is a bit uh, forgotten the the last thing i was going to ask you about mcdermott specifically was you know his, his sisters alice and gertrude who, who you who you mentioned they, they just seem very caring of him yeah that's certainly true i think i think they they did make sure that he got out to play golf because i guess that they knew that the golf was uh was something that that was a connection to who he was before he, he got sick yeah all credit to them for for doing that i mean he wasn't he wasn't just put away and forgotten about he did get out uh he did get to play golf uh, i think his sisters were wonderful to him and uh he was very lucky on that front. Did they leave any family? Was there any? Was there any direct uh, family to, to John McDermott that you were able to to find or, or get in touch with? I, I was not. I was not able to. Um, uh, so I, yeah, it it may have been the end of the line. Uh, uh, I was not able to, to find anything. Uh, not a hundred percent on that, but I think that's part of the part of the story as well. Yeah. I've taken more of your time than I think I, I asked for initially. So I, I really, really appreciate you talking through and, and resharing this, this story again, if, if anybody wants to read it, um, they can find it. it. It was originally published in golf world, um, trials of a trailblazer. And then I, I know for a fact, cause I found it on ESPN.com. They, they republished the, uh, the story. So a, a few different outlets, uh, people can search if, if they want to read through the, your whole story. Uh, Randy also, uh, it is in my anthology of stories that was published, uh, five years ago. It's one of the stories in that anthology as well. So, uh, if, if someone were to be interested in reading more of my articles, they could pick up that anthology as well. Well, perfect. Please, uh, it's, Please plug that, and and I was going to ask you what else you're working on currently. So, uh, what, what's the name of that anthology? Uh, it was it's called uh, Arnie Sevy and a Fleck of Golf History. It was published by University of Nebraska Press and uh, five years ago. Excellent. I I will for sure check that out. I, I appreciate you uh, bringing that to my attention. And uh, you know, I'll just say that uh, Steve Eubanks, as I mentioned, did a, a nice, a very long story about McDermott uh, last year. It won a golf writing prize, and it was you know along similar ground to what I wrote uh, 15 years ago. So uh, I would recommend people if they want to find out more to, to not only read my story but but check that story out as well. Okay, perfect. Well, you've given me one more thing to to read because I actually did not come across that. So I will be excited to uh, to see that story. Uh, before I get you out of here, turning to the 2019 the the current u.s open do you have a pick to win it this year bill well i tell you i i think stranger things could happen than kepka actually uh, uh going ahead and, and getting the three-peat because you know mcdermott you know went for a three-peat in 1913 i was there at uh, medina when curtis strange was going for three in a row in 1980 i'm sorry 1990 you know he gave it a good run i think kepka's going to give it a very good run i think that guy is really something really cool customer and I expect to see him in contention, and that would be cool if we could, 
you know, see the see the possibility of a third straight U.S. Open victory, you know, going back, you know, to what Willie Anderson did in the early part of the 20th century. I think that'd be very cool. I, I agree. It, it seems like uh, <laughs> it gets to like every major, and I just feel like Kepka right now. He, he, he just like I, I can so easily picture him winning. It seems like every major we get to, um, he he's just got a game built for for really any and all conditions. I think I think whoever wins is going to have to drive it straight. From what I hear, the fairways have been pinched in considerably. Uh, at least that seems to be the the chatter on the the Twitter sphere. So uh, you know you're going to need to to drive it straight at Pebble. All right. Well, we'll put you on the record then for for Kepka. Hopefully, uh, hopefully getting number three this week. Thank you so much for for the the really fun conversation and, and sharing this inter- interesting story about uh, John McDermott. Well, thanks for noticing it, and uh, thanks for having me on. Enjoy talking to you. Nice is the spot for that trap draw. Favorite rapper, hey, now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper. The absolute.